I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Welcome everybody, this is the third part of our new Great Sea Fight series and we're looking at the Battle of the River Plate from December 1939. If you missed them, parts one and two told the story of the battle from an account gathered together by the Admiralty in the immediate aftermath of the battle and is based on the official Royal Naval Dispatches from the captains of the ships involved. Today we have an overview and analysis of the battle from the naval historian Professor Eric Grove. Eric is one of the country's best-known naval historians. He's a vice president and fellow of the Society for Nautical Research, a member of Council of the Navy Record Society, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, president of Maritime History North and a first Sea Lords fellow. After a seriously impressive career, Eric retired from full-time teaching in 2015, though he continues as a regular lecturer at the Joint Services Command and Staff College, as a visiting supervisor at Cambridge, and as an external examiner for PhDs. You'll no doubt have seen him adding detail and colour to all sorts of TV documentaries. But most importantly for us today, he's the author of numerous books, and in particular, he's the author of The Price of Disobedience, The Battle of the River Plate Reconsidered. So if your interest has been piqued by these podcasts, and I very much hope that it has, do please check out his book. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. Hi, Sam. It's a great pleasure. So what's the background to the battle? What do we need to know? Well, Admiral Graf Spee, a German armoured ship, as they, as they officially call them, and which we call pocket battleships, in fact, they were really just super heavy cruisers, uh, was out on a raiding voyage. It had left just before the outbreak of war and was ordered to go to the South Atlantic, where it it made a certain mark. It actually moved also into the Indian Ocean, where it found a small tanker, and it sank another eight other ships of just over, over 50,000 tonnes. And perhaps rather more than the actual merchant shipping losses, uh, the, the problem was that it tied down a huge amount of Anglo-French naval strength looking for it. Um, now, one of the hunting groups was led by Commodore Harwood, who was the Commodore of the, uh, of, the, of the South American station. He knew the waters there extremely well. He served there in command of the station before the war. Um, he had un- under his command four cruisers, two heavy cruisers, Exeter and Cumberland, and two light cruisers, Ajax, in which at the time he was flying his flag, and Achilles, which had a largely New Zealand crew. 
and he used his knowledge of the theatre uh, to very good effect. Um, he uh, thought that, in fact, uh, the pocket battleship might, as the British call them, uh, might be going home and therefore it might like to make a mark before it did. And so, without any particular direct intelligence, he took his three operational cruisers, Cumberland was, was, uh, was, uh, was um, in the Falkland Islands for a refit, uh, to patrol off the River Plate, working out... Uh, on on the back of an envelope, effectively, or a signal uh, chit, uh, that in fact she'd probably be there on the morning of December 13th. And she was. Well, let's talk about this um, commerce rating. I mean, first of all, this is a battle in distant waters. It's, you know, it's in the South Atlantic. Yes. What, what, why was there so much fear around commerce raiding? And, and why was the location, why was the River Plate so important? Well, the River Plate was important because a lot of trade to Britain, uh, meat and other things, came out of the River Plate uh, from uh, Argentina as well as Uruguay. And the shipping lanes there were actually quite important. The ships coming out were quite important. And um, if serious losses could be inflicted on these, and if, perhaps if the worst came to the worst, the flow of shipping stopped, uh, then Britain would suffer serious economic consequences. Of course, eventually it was the German submarines in the Atlantic that turned out to be the main commerce raiding threat. But there were serious uh, worries that, in fact, uh, surface ships, both warships and our merchantmen, uh, might inflict serious damage and might seriously disrupt trade. I, mean, I suppose the main concerns here are all learned from the experience of the First World War, which yes. also began with, with, a, with, with a combat the, you know, in the South Atlantic. How much do you think there was a hangover about what had happened um, in the First War? Well, it's quite significant, actually. In fact, Admiral Graf Spee, named after the German admiral who won the Battle of Coronel, sinking, uh, sinking two large, large British uh, cruisers, uh, the name was actually inscribed on the on the foremast of the ship. So it was kind of hanging over Captain Langsdorff, the commander, that it would be good if he could possibly have some kind of victory um, before he came home. However, Admiral Admiral, uh, Raider, who was the commander of the German Navy, he had said to his commanders, for heaven's sake, don't engage warships because they will damage you and you won't be able to get home. And in fact, he disobeyed that order. In fact, I call my own book on the battle, The Price of Disobedience. It's it's worth adding here that, you know, we are in these very, very distant waters. There There is no friendly port for Absolutely. anyone to go to, is there? Yeah. It's the great problem for, for, uh, for German ships. In the First World War, there was a certain infrastructure, but at this time, the only support that Grafspey had was the tanker Altmark which it met on various occasions, exchanged prisoners, in fact put most of the prisoners on board on board Altmark, although the captains were actually kept in Admiral Graf Spee. Uh, but no, I mean, if you're damaged, you're in, in deep trouble because uh, you haven't got repair facilities, you have to rely on the good offices of neutrals at, at best, and if you suffer significant damage, then you might not be able to get home at all. What were they doing for fuel? The, the pocket battleships had diesel engines. And the tanker Altmark carried enough to give the uh, to give Graf Spee quite a large amount of mobility. They would find each other and engage in in refueling operations. Mm. And the uh, in terms of the awareness of the dangers of commerce raiding, that must have come from the experiences in the First World War. What about people's understanding of what might happen if if you know two two ships of these of this sort of size met? 
Um, well, I, I think that um, the big fear was, in fact, of surface raiders, um, the rather more than of, of submarines at this time. Uh, and so the surface raider threat was probably, to some extent, exaggerated. But certainly, if you found one of these ships and you were a British warship or a small British squadron, you obviously engaged it. And Commodore Harwood as well as having great knowledge of South American waters, was probably the Royal Navy's greatest expert on how you engaged a pocket battleship and exploited its weaknesses. Hmm. So what, what happened when, when, when the, the Royal Naval Squadron found this, this German ship? Well, uh, the, the, the squadron came into contact with Grafsch Bay, uh, and Grafsch Bay decided to disobey orders. Langsdorff, her captain, decided to disobey orders and attacked. And he tried to close the close the British uh, squadron, which he which he uh, uh, he mistook for just a couple of destroyers and a light cruiser. In fact, it was a heavy cruiser and two light cruisers. And by closing the range, he actually gave up a lot of the advantage of his superior 11 inch guns. Another thing that didn't help was that as Grafspey accelerated into the attack, her diesel engines caused such bad vibration that they temporarily broke down the forward turret, which was half the armament. So, in fact, she, she went into action with only three of her six in her six guns fully operational. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that the middle gun of, of the fore turret was never actually back in action with, with the other two. In fact, if you look at pictures of the wreck uh, up after she was scuttled, it's still drooping. Oh, wow. So the, um, well, let's just think a little bit more about the relative strengths and weaknesses of the forces involved. Well, the 11-inch guns of the pocket battleship were, were, were far more powerful in terms of weight and broadside uh, than the 6, 8-inch guns of HMS Exeter uh, 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 and the 8, uh, 6-inch the guns of the two light cruisers, Ajax and Achilles. Um, and uh, they could cause quite serious damage, but the weakness was there were only six of them. Uh, doctrine said you should only really fire them at one target, although it, they could be fired at two targets, but if they were, only three guns on each target didn't lead to a great deal of accuracy, assuming that, that the four turret was, in fact, working. working. Um, so if you split the fire of the pocket battleship, you would greatly weaken its, um, its strength. In other words, if you put your force into two squadrons, as Harwood did, the two light, light cruisers in one squadron and Exeter in, in the other, Grafsch Bay would have to basically concentrate on just one of these squadrons and try and sink it. He did inflict uh, quite serious damage on HMS Exeter, uh, but she survived and quite soon he had to return to engage the, the two light cruisers because he was suffering repeated hits from them. Well, what sort of range was this happening at? The battle started at a range of 19,700 yards. Uh, so, that's, uh, so we're talking about, about 10 nautical miles. And it closed a little bit after that. Um, so we're talking about, you know, um, a moderate range by the standards of of, 20, of 20th century naval warfare. Yeah. Was it was it easy being accurate at that kind of range? Um, easy is perhaps too strong a word. <laughs> yeah, especially say. especially as uh, as the ships were manoeuvring, uh, and uh, in fact, uh, one 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 way you could put the. Uh, enemy's fire off was to sail away from where um where his his shells were falling because you could you, you could actually put the enemy's fire off so um naval gunnery as usual was as much an art and a science even at those kinds of ranges 
Yeah, and and the speed and manoeuvrability of of the ships is is a is a key aspect to to what happened in this battle. Well, they're speeding along. Yes, I mean, I mean, they're uh, they're doing. I think I think Graf Spee could do about twenty four knots, and the British cruisers uh, slightly more. I mean, what what you have? Imagine a, a largest ship being pursued by three others at a range of about twenty miles or slightly less, and tra- and and travelling at what about in land terms about. About thirty miles an hour. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure "easy" was not the right word to, <laughs> to, to use <laughs> no, no, to describe yeah. to describe the experience. Um, do we have a, a good understanding of battle? It's often fascinating how naval battles like this, or for any period, are actually historians can recreate them. Have we got a good good variety of sources to help us understand this battle? Well, um, there are there are basically two maps. Uh, one is the British map, and the other is the German map. And they're not entirely compatible. <laughs> That's interesting. That's interesting. And it's quite um, interesting to see, you know, how their um, how their uh, um, you know what their differences are. Um, but but um, yeah, but fundamentally, um, it was a it was a pursuit action. Um, Exeter had to give up the chase because she was quite ser- seriously damaged and effectively knocked out as a fighting unit. Um, but uh, it, it was uh, but the two light cruisers. Uh, uh, continue the action. If you think of sort of of two terriers, if you like, yeah, ch- you know, ch- chasing a rather larger animal, but in but but inflicting some bites. I mean, because the uh, co- a, a large number of six-inch hits were caused on the ship, and these, in fact, did inflict some quite significant damage. Another thing that shocked the Germans considerably was that one of the eight-inch shells that Exeter managed to. to to get away at Graf Spee, penetrated her armour belt. It shouldn't have done that, in theory. Hmm, so was that surprising for, for both sides? Uh, I, um, I think if, if we'd known it had happened, I think we'd have been surprised, but it was a shock for the Germans. Yeah. Also, Langsdorff, who, who, who directed the battle from the top of the sort of rather solid foremast of Graf Spee, uh, he um, uh, suffered some wounds which uh, might well have damaged his morale somewhat. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So we've got this situation where, where the graph space um, damaged um, and is limping. Uh, what happens next? Well, she decides to put into the nearest port uh, so, so, so she could repair her damage. She also has a rather nasty hole in her forecastle, which, uh, uh, which was low anyway. In fact, the seakeeping of, of the pocket battleships was not that good. In fact, as, as remarked upon by Captain Dove, who had been captured uh, in, in the Africa shell off in the Mozambique Channel and went round the Cape in her and said that she was not a good, a good seaboat at all. And to make matters worse, the British had put a hole in her forecastle. So where did she go? Where did she she went into Montevideo. And now we come to the to the whole whole sort of diplomatic and deception part of part of the exercise. Uh, Uruguay was quite pro-British. Some people say that she should have gone into into Buenos Aires, but I'm not so sure about that. That that because I think the Argentines w- w- would have acted rather as the as the as the Uruguayans did. The Uruguayans said she could only stay for a very limited period of time, which the Germans said was too little uh, to do the the necessary repairs. For example, she lost her galley uh, and Langsdorff couldn't, couldn't feed his men. Uh, but then uh, the British decided it would it be better if they kept her there as long as possible. Uh, and, and pressure was put on the, uh, uh, the Uruguayan government, um, who tried to actually ca- keep a pretty neutral middle course between the two sides. There were worries that, in fact, uh, the German ship might actually you know, use its guns to coerce things out of the, uh, out of the Uruguayans. But uh, our, our minister in, in Montevideo, the, uh, 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 the, um, the great gentleman Millington Drake of the FO, you might say, uh, he and the uh, naval attaché from across, uh, the, across the plate, uh, and in fact, and this was a, a factor that the, that the Germans didn't know, the head, head of MI6 for the uh, South American area, they engaged in what can only be called a brilliant deception operation. They um, made the Germans think that heavy British units, uh, capital ships, aircraft carrier, battleship, etc., battle cruiser, were actually quite close by. They weren't, but they made the Germans think they were. And behold, the Germans, observing what was going on out in the plate, thought they began to see British capital ships there. So <laughs> that's amazing. So, so visions. In, that's right, visions. Uh, so they looked. I've I've actually stood there myself, and I must admit, a minesweeper looked remarkably like, you know, like a frigate if you didn't get the distance right. Um, and and so the Germans began to be convinced that in fact there were British heavy units waiting for them. Also, Graf had shot off a lot of her ammunition, so her fighting capacity was somewhat limited. And Langsdorff decided in the end that the only thing he could do, rather than have the ship interned, that would be a disgrace, was to sink her himself, scuttle her. So how, how, how do you scuttle a pocket battleship? I wonder how he did that. You put torpedo warheads under the turrets and explode them. And if you look at pictures of the wreck, you will see that the torpedo um, uh, under the fore turret didn't go off. Uh, but the one under the after turret did and caused a huge great bang. Uh, and and, and uh, also the, um, 
there were there were scuttling charges in other parts of the ship. Of course, the Germans had a tradition of scuttling. If you think of the high sea fleet being scuttled at at at, um, at Scapa Flow, <laughs> they were experts. Yes, well, well, and it's quite. And as far as the German navy is concerned, it's quite an honourable end. It is better than better than surrender. You know, better than hauling down the flag. And so she sails out of Montevideo, flying a large German 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 na- um, naval ensign. Her men are transferred during the day to uh, to uh, other other vessels. Uh, that the final crew uh, gets off, in- including Langsdorf, and the ship blows up in quite shallow water and stays there burning. And and there's footage of that, isn't it? It's quite Absolutely, remarkable yes, footage. It is, it is. Yeah. Who who created that footage? Where did that come from? Do we um, well, film news companies. Basically, yeah. I mean, uh, 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 it was all this was filmed. Graf Spee going out, uh, being observed by crowds and crowds of interested Uruguayans uh, going out, and indeed there was a commentary. There was an American journalist who was commentating. This, this, this is shown quite accurately in the feature film of the Battle of the River Plate, uh, and so this was a public event. And I think one reason that the River Plate got the got the sort of notoriety it did was because this had become a media event of the first order. Yeah, it's been so unusual for um, these kind of beasts of sea power to, 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 to play out their drama in full view of, of sort of watching spectators. The only one I can think of at the moment is the Spanish Armada, where people are watching the Spanish come past from the cliffs of Plymouth. Yes. Um, yeah, and That's it's, right, it's, absolutely, uh, yes. Um, you know, kind of really bring, brings it home, actually, what's going on. How was it interpreted um, in Germany? Um, I think it was considered to be something of a, of a disgrace. Uh, and uh, it, 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 it certainly did nothing to improve the prestige of the German Navy. I mean, the two major operational units of the German Navy at this time, one of them had been brought to book and scuttled. Her sister ship, Deutschland, later renamed Lutzo because Hitler I didn't want a ship called Germany sunk. Um, the, uh, she wasn't very successful in the North Atlantic because of the convoy system, and she made it back home and served for several years yet in the war. But 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 uh, but it it didn't do the prestige of the German Navy any good at all. It did the prestige of the Royal Navy a huge amount of good. I think Churchill put it that in a long dark winter it warmed the cockles of the British heart, and much <laughs> and much was made of. The victory. There was a victory parade in in um, in, in London. Uh, Achilles was greeted with with with, uh, with uh, great great enthusiasm in New Zealand, and uh, so it was much. Was, in fact, it was the first British victory, the first Allied victory, even of the war. So much so that um, uh, the Southern Railway decided it was going to name its new class of express locomotives the Victory Class, and they actually had some plates cast the plate. Uh, but as there were precious few victories after that, it was decided to rename the class the Merchant Navy class and name them after shipping lines. <laughs> Probably quite wise. So <laughs> you, you raise an interesting point there. So um, there's the immediate response to it, but then then things change because of the course of of the war. And I suspect that that the way that the um, this this battle was viewed that that you know not necessarily tarnished, but it, it certainly changes in, in British mind, doesn't it? Well, it does, yes, although I noticed that my parents, when the film came out, they knew quite a lot about the battle. Uh, it was, it, 
It was seen as a, it was seen as, shall we say, rather iconic, actually, in many ways. I mean, it was a, it was a classic British victory of the old style. And also, it was a very old style battle. Um, uh, aircraft, an aircraft was launched by Ajax, and it helped, to some extent at least, when, you know, when they got the frequencies right in the, in the gunnery. But it, it's, a, it, it's very much a, an old-fashioned early 20th century battle fought out with guns and, to and torpedoes, although no torpedo hits were actually scored. And so it's a, it's a classic sea fight, and it's a classic sea fight that the Royal Navy won. Why do you think it's important that we, we study this battle, that we go back and we look at, look at, at what happened and how it is remembered? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a very dramatic event. I mean, the, the chase of the Graf Spee, bringing her to book, the three smaller ships defeating a larger one, which, which is very much a British legend in, in itself. It's you know, like Spanish Armada legend. Uh, and mm. it, so in a, in a range of ways, it plays to the British conception of the nature of sea power, what British sea power is all about, and the role of the Royal Navy in protecting sea lines of communication. Yeah. And, and in terms of what happens you know, with the Royal Navy through the rest of the Second World War, it does. It really does stand out as an unusual event, doesn't it? Um, I suppose so, yes. I, I mean, uh, there are, are other surface actions, um, the, uh, um, which, which involve capital ships. Uh, the sinking of the Scharnhorst, of course, in 1943, which is carried out in very different waters in Arctic twilight uh, off the North Cape. The pursuit of the Bismarck, um, which is, is eventually successful, so, in a sense, it sets the scene for what happens to German ships if they fall into the hands of the Royal Navy. So, at that level, it's a precursor of what comes mm. later. Yeah. One of the interesting things about this battle, of course, is that the wreck still survives. It does, yes, although it's sunk into the mud. And because of the corrosive nature of the plate bed... Um, a lot of the ship has corroded away. However, for a time, the ship belonged to the British. They used local agents to buy the wreck so that we could inspect it. One major reason being that um, it was clear that um, Graf Spee had radar and we wanted to know how good the radar was. So we bought the wreck so that we could take bits of the radar off it and take it back. And in fact, some of it is apparently still in the HMS Collingwood Museum. So we did, in fact, buy the wreck uh, and uh, it was British. It's, a, it's an extraordinary story. And if, if, if people want to know more, get the price of disobedience, <laughs> my book. Did you, I mean, you say that you, 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 went, you went there and you, um, you, saw, you saw the view the view out to the plate. Do you think that, that going to locations is, is helpful as a historical researcher? I think, it, I think it is, actually, yes, because one could quite see what the, the perspective, quite literally the perspective the Germans had looking out over over the river plate and uh, uh, you, you could see where the wreck actually was it's marked obviously by by a by a boy um and also uh, it, it was interesting that it was very hard to judge the size of warships in the distance and that i think played a significant role in the outcome of the battle well in the outcome of the whole campaign in fact mm. yeah. well absolutely fascinating for talking to us today eric i've really really appreciated it thank you for your time Great pleasure. 
fascinating stuff, but we're not even finished yet. We have one further treat coming for you to offer more background to the River Plate. And that is the first of a new series on iconic ships. And yes, we will be focusing on the Graf Spee. That will be presented by Dr. Phil Weir, the man with a serious Twitter presence at Naval Historian. And it will be coming up in the next few days. As ever, we have um, some updates from the free forum on the Society for Nautical Research's website at snr.org.uk. This is from Tony Fuller regarding the repatriation of bodies in the 1980s. Good evening, says Tony. During the 1980s, a number of the Protestant cemeteries in Spain were closed and the remains of people interred there were repatriated to the UK. I have the details of the actual disinterment, the reasons why, and a lot of local history. But we know that the bodies from the cemetery at Cartagena in Murcia were carried back to the UK on a Royal Navy ship. But tracing the ship, which remains were taken and where the remains were finally placed, is proving very elusive. Does anybody have any idea of how I might find that information, please? That's Tony Fuller writing from Spain. Um, if you want to reply, please do so on the forum at snr.org.uk. Tony has also written a post about the Battle of Cabo de Palos, the 5th or 6th of March 1938. Good evening. During the night of the 5th, 6th March 1938, the largest sea battle of the Spanish Civil War took place 60 miles off the coast of Cabo de Palos near Cartagena, one of Spain's major ports and naval establishments. A nationalist battlecruiser, Baleares, was sunk with the loss of many lives. Although part of the blockade of the Spanish coast, two destroyers, HMS Kempenfeldt and HMS Boreas, were dispatched to the area to render assistance. And whilst doing so, they were bombed by Republican planes, who mistook the British ships for nationalist ships. As a result, a British seaman, uh, A.B. Long of HMS Boreas, was hit in the chest by a shell fragment and subsequently died. I have a four-page typewritten account by A.B. Ivan E.B. Darcy, who was on the island of Palma, Mallorca at the time, who gave an almost contemporaneous account of the whole event. I have all the technical details of the two RN ships involved, but have nothing else, especially where A.B. Long is buried. Does anybody have any further information about the battle, please? I have the complete account from Spanish records, but there may be something else lurking somewhere. Again, if anyone can help, please uh, respond on the forum. Well, I hope you very much enjoyed listening today. How can you help? If you're listening on iTunes, please leave a rating or a review. It's very easy to do and it does make an enormous difference. Otherwise, please join the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk. Your subscription fee goes towards sharing the latest and best maritime and naval history and to preserving maritime heritage. And you can even get to come to the annual general meeting on board HMS Victory. If you're a member, it's an exceptional privilege that's worth the price of membership on its own. Apart from that, please just spread the word about the podcast. Tell us on social media how much fun you're having listening to it. And generally tell everyone you know, including strangers. But that's it for now. Thanks, guys. Bye. <laughs>